Clear prop. Star 73 is Cherokee, number two, following twin traffic, three mile final. There's something One trailer Bravo makes for in runway 25, going uh, four mile final. This is Behind the Prop with United Flight Systems owner and licensed pilot Bobby Doss and his co host, major airline captain and designated pilot examiner Wally Mulhern. Now, let's go Behind the Prop. What's up, Wally? Hey, Bobby, how are you? Fantastic. This week is a show that is near and dear to my heart and one that we've thought about doing but really didn't have the right context for a long, long time. Today is all about selecting a flight school. Many of you uh, listening to this show probably have already selected a flight school or an independent CFI to help you with your training, but I still get question after question online, on Facebook, on LinkedIn, via email about things that a person should do to pick a flight school and... um, Today, we're going to break them all down. We're going to start with kind of the, the, the common questions that I get asked on a regular basis that, that students are thinking about early on in their training or before they pick a flight school. And then we're going to talk about really what, out of the years of experience and training that Wally and I have both done, really what we would suggest to a brand new person that wants to become a pilot. And that that list is extensive, so this will probably be a fairly long show. And then we're going to talk about really some must-haves and some things to watch out for, things that you know I think people have perceptions of happen more than they do, and, and maybe they do happen a lot. They just don't happen at this flight school. But uh, some things to watch out for and then some closing thoughts to send you on your way. Hopefully this show gets listened to thousands and thousands of times by people all around the world and will help them pick a flight school near them. Wally, you said you're really close to 40 years now. Um, on your aviation career, anniversary of solo, et cetera, you, I assume, went to flight training. How did you pick that first flight school that you went to? Well, it, it was it was actually fairly easy. It happened to be uh, our next door neighbors owned it, so it was uh, it was it was personal. That's where you were going to go. <laughs> personal con- con- uh, connection with with the owners of the flight school good i mean i knew them so that that made it really simple and for me it was a neighbor who i knew had built a plane in his garage so i figured he knew something about aviation and uh i knew he had riveted wings and stuff in his garage so i just asked him if he would meet me and talk and it's gonna be one of my recommendations later is to try and find that mentor but we talked and he sent me to this very flight school to meet the team and to talk to them about my flight training goals, and uh, that's what I did, and I've been here ever since. So let's let's dive into the questions that I think regularly come up, and these are not in any specific order, but uh, once we discuss these questions, we'll kind of give you some suggestions on a path forward. So number one happens almost every time, and I think there's a lot of FUD, uh, fear, uncertainty, and doubt around this topic. Should I go to a Part 61 or Part 141 school? I hear 141 so much cheaper, Wally. I, th- I think I'm going to go that route. You ever heard that question from anybody? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, it, you know, it is different. Uh, 141 is just a little bit more structured. Um, uh, it's probably going to be a bigger flight school if it's a 141 operation. Um, there's a lot of uh, regulatory um hurdles that the flight school has to go through to get that 141 um, certification. Um, uh, you know, it's, uh, can I say a 141 school is better than a Part 61 school? No, I don't think so. Um, and in fact, most of the 141 schools that I work with, um, two of them in particular, um, you know, Probably the majority of their students are Part 61, although they are 141 school. So just because they offer Part 141 doesn't mean that you have to um, be under 40, 141. You can be under Part 61. Yep. Um, part of that question often is also, does does 141 help me become a professional pilot? Like, does that something my recruiter is going to ask me about and that if I didn't do 141, I won't look as good to them? No, absolutely not. Yeah. yeah, the certificates that you get, and we did do a whole show on Part 61 and Part 141 uh, some months back, so go check out that show. It tells you all the intricate details between the two. 
But at the end of the day, there are two parts of a big book. And at the end of the training periods, you're going to have a certificate to be a private pilot. And your restrictions or lack of restrictions should and will be the same, uh, whether you finished 141 or part 61. Right. Um, I, I Some of this show, I'm going to be a little biased. But I think a, a 141 school that's gone through the effort to submit the paperwork to the FAA and to be uh, approved by the FAA and to be regulated and inspected by the FAA, they, they're, they're doing something for all that effort, right? That, and a Part 61 school doesn't have to do those things. I, I, would, I would simply think that a 141, if a school is 141, they have done some work that a non-141 school either can't do because they're never going to be eligible for it or don't do because it's hard work. So, uh, I would say 141 schools probably got some professional stuff going on that I might look into, but I wouldn't say I would never go to a Part 61 school. Right. This is one that's near and dear to our heart. We talk about it often, but do I should I take my written exam before I start my flight training? And where do I go take that exam, and how do I register for, for that exam? Thoughts, Wally? Yeah, this, this is um... – this is uh, pretty controversial, this this thought. Uh, my personal thought is no, don't take your written test before, or, or the knowledge test. Don't take the knowledge test before uh, you start your flight training because um, it, it all coincides. It's it, They all relate to each other. If you're, um, you know, maybe if you're a very good memorizer, you could go in and, and read this stuff and memorize what the answer is. But what are you memorizing? You're memorizing words. You're memorizing numbers, maybe. Um, you're mem- memorizing regulations. Um, and and maybe you're not really learning how it applies to actually going and flying an airplane from point A to point B. And um, so, uh, you know, for some people it works that way. I, I could have never done that. I could have never gone in and just studied the knowledge test stuff, and then not not been in an airplane, and uh, and then taking the knowledge test. Um, now, on the other side of that, for some people, they're all almost all ready for their check ride, and they have this big thing hanging over their head called the knowledge test, and they haven't taken it. So, um, you know, that is something that you know the the ground needs to be. Uh, you know, you need you need to be keeping up with the ground school along with the flight training. And I think given the choice of sitting in a classroom or sitting in a briefing room with an instructor or doing something online or actually sitting in an airplane, I would like to think that every one of us would, would pick being in an airplane. Um, no question. No question. And I used to tiptoe around this one some and say it's debatable. I, I'm going to, I'm changed my stance a little bit. I don't think you should take it. There's no, there's no better way than to wait um, for sure. And the reason for that is it's simple. You're going to learn so much more once you start flying the airplane. That doesn't mean go do all the studying and reading that you want to do and be prepared to take your written before you start flying. If that's your choice, so be it. You're still not as smart as you're going to be once you finish 40, 50 hours of flight training along with all that ground that you've done. So you're going to do better on the test for sure. I think the key message is wait until an appropriate time in your flight training where you have experienced all the things that you're going to be examined on um, so that your knowledge, keyword knowledge, is that much better uh, before you take the test. I I know I'm right about that, and I'm not going to beat around the bush anymore. I think Many, many places can do testing for the written exams or the knowledge exams, and they're not all on airports. So they're really called CATS training centers. I, I believe they're all called CATS, or if they're not, they they uh, use the same system that you can register for a written exam, and you go pick a spot, pick a place, register for the exam, and go take it. Um, you will, for the private, for sure, need an endorsement, and that. You can get that many different ways, but uh, I think the people that are adamant that you should do it before you do any flight training, I just don't think they're right, and uh, you should seek some other advice. Do the aircraft at the flight school that I'm looking at matter? Does it matter to me what type of aircraft they have? Um, this is another one that I'm a little biased on. Of course it matters, uh, and how they do maintenance and a lot of other things matter, but 
the question came up recently. I want to fly to fly school. I want to buy a low wing aircraft when I'm done flying. The flight school I'm looking at that I really like doesn't have any low wing aircraft. Should that keep me from going there? I don't think it should keep you from going there, but I mean, if you're going to do all your learning in a high wing aircraft like a Cessna, and then you plan to buy a Piper warrior when you're done, you might not be doing yourself the best service of doing that type training. So I would challenge you to find a place that has a low wing aircraft. But other than that, all these single engine trainers have something in common that I don't think non pilots understand. And they're built and they're great trainers for two reasons. They're probably inex- the least expensive to operate. They're not cheap to operate, but they're the least expensive aircraft to operate. And they have stability like no other, right? So you take a Cessna and you put it up against a, an F-18 Hornet and you drop both of them out of the sky. One of them's going to fly and one of them's going to be a lawn dart. And the one that's going to fly is going to be the Cessna. And it's just going to be innate at probably getting its wings level and turning upright and going straight and level. Um, the F-18, probably not so much. And the reason that it's unstable is because it needs to be unstable to be able to do the things it does in a dogfight. And you want the trainer to be really, really stable. So both Warriors, Piper, Archers, Cherokees, Cessnas, they're all really, really stable. And that's what makes them really, really good trainers. Yeah. The facilities, how important are the facilities? I think this is one that kind of goes unnoticed, but people ask this a lot. Um, you know, I, I think if they don't have classrooms, if they don't have a place for you to congregate, um, if they don't have bigger classrooms for group training, I mean, you're you're going there to learn. I think you're going to want a place that has some facilities. Um, we'll talk a lot about schools and independent people during this podcast, but the one thing that that I again, I'm being as, as agnostic as I can that I worry about with students that take independent contractors on is that they're getting a plane out of a tea hanger. They probably don't have a place to really sit down and do ground or sit down and have a debrief or a pre-flight conversation that would be tough for me to be in that learning environment. I would want a, a room of some sort. So you got to think about what you're looking for and how you want to train. And if that's important to you, make sure the flight school you're looking at has the facilities that you want. And a tall tale sign for me about anything. If you live in Texas, you've probably been to Bucky's. If you've been to Bucky's, you know there's one thing that Bucky's is known for, and that is super clean bathrooms. And if the bathroom at your fly school isn't clean, I doubt their aircraft are going to be clean. I doubt their classrooms are going to be clean. And I think it's a tall tale sign of what that future is going to look like at that fly school. Yeah, yeah. I, I just recently had a, a doctor's appointment, and and. As I'm in the waiting room and went back and was in the the exam room waiting for the doctor to come in, you know, I, I was looking around and I was I was thinking to myself, this this is not very clean, um, and it it didn't give me a great feeling. Um, I actually the, the doctor came in and and the doctor did give me a very good feeling and everything worked out just fine. But, uh, my initial thought was, Oh boy, am, did I come to the right place? Yep. And it'll stick with you too. That first impression is a big one for sure. So I would say, make sure you visit as well. Pricing super important to me. I've got to find the cheapest flight school I can. Wally, is that the right mindset early on in flight training? Well, maybe so, but just know that the hourly rate of the airplane or the CFIs um, may not be indicative of the end cost. You ever heard you get what you pay for? Yeah, yeah absolutely. That, that might be it. I, I find it uh, comical uh, on the internet. I see it often. You know, um, What's the cheapest rate around here for me to get to rent a plane? That has never been my thought. I know I'm a flight school owner, but I don't want to fly the cheapest one around. I want to fly the most economical one around, like the one that's in the best shape for the dollar amount that I'm going to pay to rent it, et cetera, um, is, the, is the approach that I've always thought about it. But when people say I want the cheapest, that's not true. Because if I rented a plane for $10 an hour and it was – held together with duct tape and toothpicks, no one would want to fly that aircraft, even right. if it was the cheapest. So right. keep in mind, the economics are important. Having something that is economical is important. But if it's $5 an hour for something that's nicer, more, better, etc., 
if you fly train for 40 hours, that's only $200. And man, we're talking about something that's really expensive overall. $200 right. is right. not that's a drop in the, in the bucket. If you go and you work with flight instructors that charge you $5 more an hour and they're worth it and they're providing you $5 more an hour worth quality training, that's only $200 more of flight instruction when it's all said and done. We're talking about check rides that cost six, $700 here. Um, yeah, I want to be really well prepared for that so that I don't have to take that thing twice. Right. Um, that's a lot of $5 bills that add up. Yeah. And I think that students should be thinking about that. So while price and the economics are important, don't get me wrong, I don't think I would shy away from a 5 or $10 variance to talk to these fly schools to make sure I understood what was the economy there for me to, to get the bigger bang for my buck. Right. And then quite often I get this question, you know, should I go to a big, big school? Should I think about a family owned school? What about a flight club? They do flight instruction out of this flight club over here or, Hey, I, I really want to work with an independent person only, um, that'll fit, fit my schedule. However I want, I, I think, I think there's reasons to use all those examples, and I think there's pros and cons to each one. Um, and I think we'll talk about those throughout the rest of this show, but there are really four choices out there. The big conglomerates, right? They're probably nationwide presence. They teach at every GA airport in the, in the country. Um, then there's family-owned flight schools like this one. Uh, there's flight clubs, and then there's independent people that, that do it on the side that have access to aircraft. I could probably debate on why I might use any of those options at any point in time in my training. Um, but you're really going to have to take your goals and map them to one of those that's going to make you more successful. Yeah. The one thing I, I would, I would have you, um, consider is, is the number of airplanes. Um, you know, I, I, when I get people all the time, text me, call me, email me, say, Hey, I want to learn, I want to get my private pilot certificate. Um, where do I need to go? What should I do? And I, I mean, first of all, I'll, I'll give them the name of several flight schools. I say, you need, you need to go out and check these places out because they all have a different, um, a different feel to them, a different vibe to them. Um, and, uh, you know, you probably want to find the one that fits your personality. Um, but, but one thing that is important, I, I tell people that I, I believe that you need to, um, you know, especially in the very beginning of your training, you need to schedule to fly three times a week keeping in mind that probably one of those three times a week, something's going to get canceled because you're working around four different schedules. You're working around your schedule. You're working around the instructor schedule. You're working around the airplane schedule and you're working around the weather schedule. And, um, you know, maybe this time of year where we actually have nice weather, um, here in Houston, most of the time, um, you know, if you schedule three times a week, you know, probably a good chance that you will get to fly three times a week. But the one, one thing that we can, we can look at is if you're at a, a flight school that has a limited number of airplanes, if that airplane goes down for maintenance, um, your, your training is on, on hold. So I think that is important. You know, you know, if you're going to train in, uh, 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 Piper Warrior, for instance, how many warriors does this flight school have? Does it have two, three, four, five airplanes so that if one does go down, you've got a backup? And the same thing, I think that's similarly with flight instructors too, right? And that's that's the only kind of major issue that I have with, with people that are stuck in the independent world that, that if that person's sick in this world gets COVID right now, your flight training's on hold. You're, you're done. You're stuck. Right. And even if they have friends, you're, you're still going to be limited to, to where their schedules fit as well. Um, so just keep that in mind. I think uh, that I love Wally's three times a week. One's going to get canceled because that probably is the reality in, in the world uh, based on those four schedules. And I, and I think it is, uh, you know, it's a good idea to be at a flight school that does have multiple instructors. I, I don't think it's a good idea for every time you walk in to have a different instructor. Um, I'm not saying that at all. I think there's continuity with with finding the instructor whose personality um, meshes with yours and, and you communicate well with them. 
But um, at certain stages in the training, I think it is a good idea for a different instructor to take a look at at somebody because you, you know the the first instructor may have missed something, no doubt, and and the the other instructor will pick up. And I go back to my uh, getting my private pilot certificate. I had one instructor the entire way through. I never flew with anybody else, and I thought, wow, I'm, well, obviously he did a a decent job because I passed my check ride, but. Um, uh, I, I didn't know any better. I didn't know that maybe I should have flown with someone else to have someone else kind of evaluate me. Yeah, I always recommend two people, even at this school, if they walk, somebody walks in the door, I said, look, pick a primary and have a backup and fly with that backup by your sixth flight just to have another set of eyes and, and have a relationship with a, a, a team of people that you want to work with. Um, and I think I call that out a little bit later in the show as well. But Let's let's talk through our suggestions from kind of the starting point to the ending point, because the one student that did bring this this whole podcast to life brought up how confusing and how hard it is to find all this information. It's really weird. We can all pretty much figure out how to go to college. We can all figure out how to go to cosmetology school. It's this, this flight training is, seems to be this one off thing that is so unique. People don't know how to get started, uh, and it it is disappointing, obviously. So. I think there's two directions that almost everyone that wants to learn how to fly is in. I'll say 90 plus percentile. And that's either they want to learn how to fly for fun or they want to learn how to fly professionally. And we'll try and address both of those sides of the fence as we talk through these items. Um, But it is, if you're in one of those boats, uh, you're in the largest majority. And uh, there's very few people that are trying to find a, another path to, to aviation um, unless they just don't want to be in it and mom and dad are pushing them. That's kind of the other group that I think about often. Um, and they're pretty much doomed from the start if they don't want to do it for sure. But the first thing that I, I recommend to everybody, and we'll we'll alternate these Wally to kind of go through it for the listeners, is to find that friend and that mentor to talk to. I was lucky there was a guy on my street. But if you live anywhere near a GA airport, Wally, how how hard would it be to find someone that would sit down and talk to you about aviation and your your potential flight career? Pilots love to talk. <laughs> Pilots love to talk, so it would not be hard at all. Yeah, if you went into an FBO, which is a flight business office at any airport in the country, um, thinking GA Airport, which there's probably one every 40 miles around the country, walk into the front and say, Hey, I, I, I would like to learn to fly and I'd like to talk to somebody about it before I went and interviewed a bunch of fly schools. You would think there would be four or five people calling or texting that person by the end of the day with some, some real luck. And that can either be a phone call that can be a walk in, but, uh, find someone that you would want to talk to. There are plenty of community events going on in your area right now. If you've never been to an airport, there is a uh, open house. There is a women in aviation group meeting this Thursday night. There's a speech being delivered by someone who floor, flew in the war. Um, there's something going on in your local area at an airport that you can get involved and try and meet some people to find that mentor. No question. What's the second thing that we would recommend there, Wally, for, for potential students? Um, second thing would be to set some goals. Um, give yourself, um, you know, some goals, Uh, you know, as we're talking about a private pilot, um, probably there's, there's, um, maybe four or five hurdles. Um, maybe that's not a good word, but four or five gates that you have to go through before, um, you get your private pilot certificate. The first one, you know, shortly after you start flying, Probably a good idea is to go ahead and, and get a medical. Get your physical done just for the outside chance that you can't pass the physical. You know, if you get in and you find that you have some sort of uh, medical condition that disqualifies you from receiving an FAA medical, well, this is all a, a moot point. Um, maybe, maybe, you're, maybe you're not able to fly. Maybe you're not able to... Um, hold a first class or second class medical, which is is needed for um, to to be a commercial pilot. Um, so you know it'd be nice to know pretty early 
on in the flight training if if this is going to work for you. So, you know, maybe get a medical. Maybe that's the first goal. And that's actually very simple. All you got to do is go make an appointment, go to the the, the doctor's office and get this um, taken care of. It's a fairly easy physical. Um, but maybe the next goal is to say, gee, I would really like to solo by this time. And, you know, talk to your instructor about it and say, boy, is this realistic? I'm scheduling to fly once a week, and after four weeks I want to solo. Is that realistic? No, that's not realistic. I'm scheduling three times a week, and after six weeks I'd really like to solo. Is that realistic? Yeah, that's probably realistic. That's 18 scheduled flights, of which you're not going to probably fly 18 of them, but... Maybe, the, you know, the next goal after that is the solo cross-country. Somewhere in there is um, your um, knowledge test results. And then, you know, after that, um, the goal is, is your check ride. So to come in, you know, to a flight school and ask, is it realistic that I could have my private pilot certificate by this date? I mean, that that's a, that's a fair question. And, of course, the... the the big issue is always weather. You know, we we could um, have, you know, our, our bad weather months down here in Houston or January, February time frame, and uh, it's it's not uncommon for me to do maybe two two check rides during those months due to due to winds and ceilings and stuff. So, um, you know, factor all that into the equation. But, you know, set some goals. Yep. And I think I think you nailed it. I think there should be something short and something longer term. Um, and whether it's solo and private or whether it's private and then be working for an airline, everybody's going to be a little different. But uh, definitely have some goals and be working towards something so you can make every lesson tangible. There's no question that money is the largest barrier for potential aviators. This is not something that's cheap. And uh, you, you have to be realistic about your finances and what it's going to take to become a professional pilot if that's your goal. And if you want to fly for fun, you got to understand that's, that's expensive too. And there's just no shortcut to spending some of those dollars to get to that point. Um, and, and there's different ways that you can do it. So I tell everyone, if you don't have – people come into the school all the time – and they want to hear something different, I'm sure. But the reality is, is if you don't have access to $10,000, you're probably not going to finish your private pilot's license without or private pilot certificate without some sort of a setback. Um, it's that, That's just a good rule of thumb that I think really is true. I tell people all the time, I think I can help you spend less if you go regularly. And I know that I spent a lot more than that when I got mine because I didn't right. go as regularly. Um but if you don't have access to $10,000, you got to find a way to get access. And that's where I think financial aid comes in. There's very few choices that aren't related with the big brands like ATP, Liberty University, Emory-Riddle. Those big brands have access to some financial aid that will help you because they're affiliated with bigger institutions and, and the throughput for their businesses is massive. Um, so if you, if you can access the big brands like that, Inside of even smaller flight schools, you might have access to other financial aid. There are a few independent financial aid offerings from, um, there's a, used to be called pilot finance. They're now called flight training finance. Um, they, they, they'll let you do one program at a time. So private, but you have to pay back half that loan before you get to next loan. Uh, AOPA does some financing, but it's a risky business. So those rates aren't going to be really, really low. It's expensive. So be realistic with how much money you have access to with how long it's going to take you. I, people tell me all the time they got two or $3,000 saved up. They want to get started. That's going to be a painful journey because they're going to start and they're going to spend all that money and they're going to stop and they're going to wait till they save a bunch of money and then they're going to come back and they're not going to be, they're not going to be where they were when they left and right. they're, they're going to have to retrain for sure. Yeah. What's the next thing with their walling? Well, next one is to uh, reach out to a number of schools in your area and go interview them. Go in, check out their facilities, ask them what kind of, um, you know, how many, how many instructors they have, how many airplanes they have, and um, 
uh, just sit around, sit around, get the vibe of the flight school. See, um, see if you, if you like the people, um, you know, when you, when you walk in, do they, do they just look at you funny or do they ask if they can help you? Do they, um, you're the customer. You so are the, the customer. customer. So you should, um, you should be treated as such. And, um, you know, who do you, who, who is showing you around the place? Um, uh, is there a CFI that you're able to talk to? Um, you know, and, and all the other things we talked about earlier is, is the facility clean? Are the airplanes clean? Um, uh, I like to think is the school busy, like in a, in a good way, not a bad way. You know, you, you, you've been probably to businesses that, everyone's really busy and scouring about, but they're not really doing much valuable things for their customers. Right. Right. Um, I like to tell people, and again, I'm, I'm a little biased, but do they talk to you about you or do they talk to you about them? Right. So if you come into a flight school and all they want to do is tout all the things that they're doing really, really well, not about what you want to accomplish and how you want to get there and what you need from them to make you successful. That's, that's probably a little bit of a yellow flag for me to say, Hmm, I don't know that they're going to be as interested in me. If you had those goals, do they ask you about those goals? Right. Those goals are important. Uh, I think for you to be there, um, a student recently told me that he went to a school and he thought he saw their show pony. And I didn't know really what that meant, but as we talked, he he said, I think they had one really nice airplane that they showed me and let me think I was going to get to fly and have access to but they didn't show me the rest of their fleet. And I looked at it on their website and it looks like it's held together with toothpicks and toothpicks and band-aids. Um, I think you should ask them to see their fleet and go walk in them. Don't see them from afar. Go take a peek inside of them. Um, and there's all kinds of common stuff that I think, I think is important, but, but it is so common that you're going to, you're going to deal with it one way or another. That's pricing. Uh, for sure, that's insurance requirements, and that's that's the kind of their cancellation policy. I think you you need to understand those for each place that you go visit. They're not going to probably change much for you, but the the pricing question isn't really the hourly rate so much as is it transparent? Do you know are they showing you what it's going to take you, or are they showing you what the FAA says the minimums are? Right. You've you've done a lot of applicants, Wally. How many of them have really been check ride ready at the fortieth hour? Um, I could say maybe two or three out of 500 yeah. plus. Yeah. So we're talking way less than 1%. Right. And, uh, I would say the, the average national average is probably closer to 60. Yeah. The schools should have some sort of an idea what their averages are, but it's not, it's not as easy as you would think for a school just to know every student average. Cause a lot of students join schools that have already had some training or I trained 10 years ago and got right to solo and now I'm back. And so it's not easy to say what it takes for every student to get to solo and certificate, but they should have some sort of an idea of their averages and and they should be able to confidently give you some of those numbers. Yeah, I agree. These are some must haves as far as if, if my son or daughter wanted to train at a fly school and I didn't own a fly school, these are things I would make a mandatory thing. Um, the school must use a syllabus, in my opinion. It's, it's critical that they're following some guideline. It can be, there's all kinds of syllabi out there, but I would think for anything that you're doing, whether it's continuing education like a flight review or a IPC, or if it's um, a private pilot certificate, they should have a syllabus. You should know what lesson one looks like and how many of those lessons and the, the completion standards to get those things done. I think they must have great maintenance. Um, it doesn't take long for maintenance to come into question if there's something that happens at a fly school. And I think I think they should be able to show you their maintenance records. I think they should be transparent with those maintenance records. I don't think they should hide a single squawk. Uh, and a squawk is an anomaly on an aircraft or, or uh, a building or some sort. They should be completely transparent with all of those things. I think they should have a solid leadership team and chief instructor team if not more than one person um a lot of fly schools that i've met and learned about over time they they share a chief or they don't have a chief in the building on a regular basis or their chief's in another city and they they, you have to travel to do a stage check that sounds expensive just to think about it yeah um but they should have a 
a solid chief team that is actively flying and teaching the 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 one token qualified person does not make a chief team in my opinion for sure and then that you get to fly on your schedule um i hear these stories of schools that set schedules and call you the day before and put you in an airplane that, that sounds crazy because it just never worked for me, but uh, maybe it works for some people out there. But I think you should get to fly when you want to fly and, and how often you want to fly. Um, and if they can't accommodate that, then I think you should look for other schools. What's a list of some other things that you think about would be beneficial, but maybe not a requirement or a must-have at a fly school that uh, students and future students should be thinking about? Well, one thing we talked about was weather cancellations. So uh, something else to think about is a simulator. If the flight school has a simulator, maybe if there, today is a bad weather day, maybe um, especially with the, the more advanced ratings, the instrument rating and, and so forth, maybe getting in a simulator um, for for the, the flight today would be a worthwhile thing. Um, simulator um, is just what it says. It simulates the flight, and um, it can be – uh, so much better of a classroom. An airplane doesn't make a great classroom. An airplane is, um, you know, this time of year it's it's hot, um, it's noisy, um, it's not a great classroom. It's the um, most expensive classroom there is. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. But a simulator can be a very nice classroom because it's quiet, it's uh, climate controlled. Uh, but probably the best thing that can happen is the instructor has the ability to push a button and stop everything. If you just are in, in the middle of a maneuver and you just say, I have no clue what I'm doing, boom. You could hit the, the, the stop button and you turn around and, and talk. Talk to the instructor and he has the ability to move you back. Okay, let's... Let me move you back, um, you know, five miles, and let's try intercepting that final approach course one more time. So um, I would say a, a simulator. That That's, you know, if they have a simulator, that's probably a pretty, pretty good um pretty good thing to have uh other thing is is we talked about the fleets i mean uh do they have uh multiple common airplanes you know if you're gonna train in a, a cessna 172 how many 172s do you have and are, are is one an n model one a p model um you know are, are they similar um I do think it's a good idea, even if you are, if you say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to train in a Cherokee. I think um, uh, somewhere in your flight train to go out and, and fly a Cessna is, is definitely a good thing because there are just different things about it. You know, it's got electric flaps. It's got a, a different uh, type fuel system. Um, and it just flies a little bit differently. So I think it is something that's very good because when you get your private pilot certificate, uh, you're legal to fly it. Yep. You you may get your private pilot certificate on a Piper Warrior and never set foot in a Cessna and you're you're legal to go fly a Cessna. Now uh you're probably not insurable, but you're legal to go fly that Cessna. Yeah, and if you're listening to this and you don't know why we're saying this is an important benefit, it it's because of maintenance. And not unscheduled maintenance, but scheduled maintenance. Fly schools are required to do some scheduled maintenance on aircraft and scheduled inspections. So if you there's only one type of an aircraft and one 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 of those, it's going to go down for maintenance, and it's probably going to go down for the day you want to fly it. At some point, for sure, it's going to, and um, you want some interchangeability there. Um, similar to the CFIs we've talked about, you want to make sure the school has CFIs and a number of full time CFIs. We've probably all been in a training environment where. Someone wasn't available to teach for a given day. Maybe work called, maybe family called, maybe something else pulled them away. You want to make sure that your schedule matches up with the team of CFIs that you have uh, available to you to teach you and that their schedules line up with yours and that they're not going to be available just one day a week. And I think it's important that a flight school be transparent on the tenure of flight instructors. Um, now with the airlines hiring again, everyone's going to leave at their 1,400th and 99th hour um, because airlines are hiring. So you don't want to start your private training with someone who's got 1,450 hours, do you, Wally? No, no. Because yeah. no. they're not going to be there when you finish. They're right. not going to get you to solo even. Right. Uh, they're going to work about, you know, at a, at a really busy flight school, they're going to work about another two weeks and they're going to be gone. 
So um, make sure you understand the tenure of those flight instructors. And then really, what are the qualifications of those? Uh, at my flight school, you have to be a double I to work here shortly after you start if you don't have it when you join. And that's important to, to one, just be a much better pilot and teacher. But everybody that trains here probably wants their instrument rating. So it's important to have those. And if the school has a twin, how many MEIs do they have? Multi-engine instructors. And you should just know these things about the school to be able to really understand if it's going to fit and help you achieve your goals. We talked about the 141 stuff. I think it's a benefit. It's not a hindrance if they don't have it, but I think it is a benefit. What else, Wally, is on that list of benefits? Oh, our hours of operation. Um, I've I I know of some flight schools that work. Uh, you know, they they say the hours are uh, eight to five. Um, can you come in earlier? Can you can you work later? I mean, if you have a just a normal job, a flight school that's eight to five probably doesn't really work for you because no. you need to come in after work or it's or you're giving up, you know, all your weekend days. Yeah, do they have the facilities like we talked about? Do they do things for the community? Do they do open house type stuff? Do they do fun activity type events for aviators? Do they do they offer group courses? Um, a lot of our students want to do time building, so we facilitate a way by which our students can pair up with one another and do time building activities. Um, I think that's important and a benefit to students. And then pros and cons how are they affiliated with bigger other other outlets like are they a Cessna pilot center do they have relationships with Textron other Piper type products do they are they affiliated with Emory Riddle or Liberty University or one of those other big schools that just gets you know all all of that stuff there for you as a student pilot it's going to benefit you um, relationships with DPEs. Uh, luckily, I'm sitting in my office and I have a DPE working on this podcast with me. But, you know, does the school have a good relationship uh, and a good history with designated pilot examiners so that when you do become checkride ready, are you are you going to be able to get on someone's schedule to be able to have that checkride? Um, and I think it's really important that the fly school does a weekly podcast. Um, well, no, that's probably a little too biased, but... Um, <laughs> Do they do other things for the aviation community? Um, that was a joke, everyone. And then I think the the big one that it goes without question, I don't think I've ever seen this one. How do you onboard your students? How do you get your students ready for flight training? And how do they know what's expected of them and what they can expect of you? And so the the, the last question and the last real thing you should be asking about is how do they onboard their students and what do they do to really make sure – you're really ready and and in the best position to be successful to achieve your goals. Uh, and and if you asked all those things and all those benefits were added up on a cheat sheet of some sort, you, you then got to pick your fly school. And I get to ask this all the time. If I pick a fly school, is it my, is it a final decision, Wally? Like, do I have to finish with that fly school? No, absolutely not. Yeah, you have some limitations with with. 141 um, transferring from school to school. But by and large, for Part 61, if you uh, started a flight school and you determine that after, you know, a couple of weeks that it's just not working for you, yeah, you can take your logbook and go down the street and, and pick up with another flight school. Um, there's going to be a learning curve. I mean, you know, getting spooled up with the other flight school, obviously. But, um, you know, it's, it's much like picking a doctor. If you go to a dentist and you realize, gee, this, uh, I just didn't really care for the, the dental office. I didn't, uh, you know, they didn't really meet my needs. Can I, could I go down the street to uh, a, a different dentist? Absolutely, you can. Yep. And I think, you know, whenever I meet a new student or family with students that want to join, I always tell them that's why I recommend Part 61 for private. Because if I'm not, if I'm not doing you right, you, I want you to be flexible in your transferability. If you start 141, there are some limitations on how much time you can take with you and what the new school's got to do. Um, and I think that level of transparency does me good and my students good. Um, and a, a real, real reason why you should start Part 61 if you're going to do private. But it's not a forever decision. Your CFI choice is not a forever decision. I don't know if you, you go to a school or you pick a school that says you have to fly with Tom, Dick, or Harry, but... If that is the case, 
that you can you can raise your hand and say we aren't clicking. I don't care what the situation is. Um, you, you're going to have to have a instructor student relationship with your instructor, and if you can't do that for personality conflicts or the language they use or whatever that might be, you need to raise your hand and say, I need a new instructor. Don't, don't wait until it's a real, real problem. Right. The, the flight schools should be able to solve that for you. Yeah. One, I, one we don't talk about a lot on the show, but we probably should is join the AOPA, right? The AOPA is something that benefits all pilots and all airplane owners and something that you can get for free as a student pilot. If you search student pilot free membership, AOPA, I'm sure you're going to get the website that lets you do that. You get six months of free subscription to the Flight Training Magazine. I still love reading that magazine. And uh, you get six months of free to the AOPA. So you could call their medical hotline if you were concerned about some medical things that you needed to address before you went and get that medical, um, et cetera. So the AOPA is a great, great tool. Try it for six months before you have to pay for it. Um, that's something that, that is an amiss if you don't join the AOPA. And then we talked about it, but get a medical sooner than later. Don't hesitate. If you think that you want to be a professional pilot, ask for a class, first class medical. They're going to do an EKG and some other things on you that are required to be an air, airplane transport pilot, right? And you, if you can't pass that now, it's going to be hard to pass it in the future. Yeah, and, 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 and the EKG only comes into play if you're over 40. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. So... Make sure you get the first class if you uh, want to fly for an airline. You can fly commercially with a second class, um, and each you'll learn more about this as you become a pilot. But each of those kind of downgrades. So a first class is always a first class, but you can fly with second class privileges, etc., longer. So get that first big one out of the way if you want to fly that way. And there's a website for that. Uh, the FA has a medical website where you go apply to get the medical and then sign up with a doctor. It's called med express. Uh, we'll put that link in the show notes as well, because I think some people just don't know how to do that until they, till it's too late. And then it's, it's too late. Um, same similar thing of getting a student pilot certificate. I hear and read horror stories of people can't solo because they've never done the paperwork in IACRA to get their student pilot certificate. And they're really ready to solo and, um, it's another thing that you should be partnering with your flight instructor and flight school team on to make sure that you're getting that student pilot certificate earlier on in your flight training uh, to make sure that you're really ready to solo when you are ready to solo. And then my final pro tip for students, this is a journey that you and another individual are going to take together or maybe a couple individuals are going to take together for a long, long time. You're going to sit in close quarters and be really, really tight with this person. It is a two-way partnership. You and your flight instructor should have an action plan for every flight, and you shouldn't just go fly, do what your instructor says, because they say it unless it's part of a plan. And uh, that means touch and goes. That means maneuvers. That means whatever it is. It should be part of that syllabus and that plan, and you should know before you get to your flight school. If you're visiting those first flight schools and you hear every flight instructor in the lobby say, what are we working on today? That's probably your first indication you should go find another flight school because they should have a plan of action. Um, and if you follow all these things that we've talked about for the last 45 minutes, I think you're going to find the right flight school for you. But some gotchas to watch out for, Wally. I've heard about all these. I've probably been blamed for a few of these in the past. But, uh, you know, common things. If you if you go to 10 flight schools and nine of them say that a private pilot's license costs $11,000, and one of them says that they can get you done in $6,500, one of these things doesn't look like the other. And they're probably quoting some minimums and not reality. Uh, yeah. Don't be swayed by these underpriced vendors that will then overtrain you as a student, and uh, you're going to get you're gonna get really a bad experience out of that. What about a flight school that guarantees you will be done before the end of the year, Wally? Is that... Does that bring you confidence? Yeah, no, no, that that's impossible. I mean, now if it's January first and they <laughs> guarantee you that you'll be done before the end of the year, well, maybe so. But um, yeah, you you just you know the the again initially you're working around four schedules, uh, two people, an airplane schedule, and and the the big one is the weather schedule, and uh, it just it just may not work out. What about other guarantees? I hear this all the time. I guarantee you I'll get you a cargo job in three years when you get done with all your stuff. Or I guarantee 
that when we do the private instrument commercial, that we'll put you in an accelerated CFI course. It's only going to take you one week, and it's cheaper than anywhere else. It's guaranteed you'll be a CFI after one week of training, accelerated training. Yeah, the the, the guaranteed flying jobs. That's that's a flag because you know it, it's the the job market is dependent on the economy, which is dependent on so many different things that that we have no control over i mean covid hit and yeah. uh, and and changed a lot of things for a lot of businesses um um you know we we were lucky uh, actually when in the flight training business i it, i think initially it we, we took a big hit but uh it came back pretty quickly and i think what we actually found is that a lot of a lot of people who uh normally wouldn't have the time actually had the time to fly because of COVID. Um, so, uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, you just can't guarantee anything like that. Yeah. So don't, don't, if you see those, that's a big red flag for sure. Um, I think that uh, if they promise that you'll not have to change instructors, that's unrealistic as well. I think we would all love for that to be the case. If you fell in love with this great instructor that you'll get to finish with them. But the reality is, is great instructors are very busy and that means they've probably flown a lot of hours and that means they might get a job before you get done with all your ratings. And right. uh, it's just not realistic that that's possible. Right. Um, and I think, I think the, the starting with Tom and then getting changed to someone else who's brand new is a, is a slippery slope. Um, brand new instructors pass their check rides and they're more than capable of teaching you how to fly an aircraft. Um, but experience does matter and you want a team that's got some variety in it and some longevity as part of it, but you don't want to start with that longest tenured CFI cause they're not going to be around when you leave. Right. I don't think any list we could put together Wally, would be perfect, but I think if they follow this stuff, they're going to find a fly school that's good for them. I think that, uh, throughout training students should keep fly schools accountable to focusing on their goals and what they need to accomplish keep up with the weather and the maintenance schedules and you'll you'll probably do pretty well anything to wrap with for flight picking a flight school or an independent cfi no as always once you do join that flight school i would say fly safe and always stay behind the prop thanks for listening Thanks for checking out the Behind the Prop podcast. Be sure to click subscribe and check us out online at BehindTheProp.com. Behind the Prop is recorded in Houston, Texas. Creator and host is Bobby Doss. Co-host is Wally Mulhern. The show is for entertainment purposes only and is not meant to replace actual flight instruction. Thanks for listening and remember, fly safe.